0: All right, this morning's reading is 1 Peter, chapter 2, 18 through 25. Let's use this one instead. All right, servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word, it's true, and it's given out of his love. You can be seated.
1: Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is uh, Aaron, and I'm usually playing some instrument on Sunday. And today, uh, as Colbert is out, I'm going to be uh, opening the Word with you guys. And I'm excited to do that. Um, if you've been with us, you know that Colbert has been taking us through this little transition uh, in the book of First Peter, where it goes from all the things that are uh, true about us. If God has given us a living hope, if God has restored us and He's called us out, um, how then should we live? How then should we live if those things are true? And uh, last week, Colbert talked about our relationship to government and our reputation as believers in the world. And we, you know, we believe here at Missio Day that, that God's Word, the Scriptures, is the basis for our life together. It's the foundation of our life. And i um, excited to jump into that with you. Um, When I was in middle school, we went on a mission trip to Guatemala, and so we went down there and we spent a couple of weeks building a mission center there and helping out building some houses and doing some services and vacation Bible school. Many of you have been on mission trips like that, and I did as well, and we would get together every night at our campsite at the end of the night, and our speaker for the week had an encouragement box. And what you could do is you could write anonymous notes and put it in the encouragement box. And at the end of his talk every night, he would get it out and he would read it uh, in front of everybody, in front of our whole team. And it would usually be something really uh, great and positive, like, you know, I really see Christ's love when I think of you, Julie. Oh, that's so great, you know. And Or, man, I really just appreciated your great attitude today, even though it was 145 degrees. Oh, thanks so much. And it was all very encouraging. And and then one night, um, the speaker got up, and, and he pulled out a note, and it said, uh, it said, Jim, when I think of you, Joshua 8-8 comes to mind. And we all just went, oh, man, that's so great, it's so encouraging, yeah. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye that two of my friends were violently shaking in the back row, cracking up. Laughing as trying to keep it quiet, and I'm like, "What's what's going on?" Because we of course we're in middle school, and so as one does, you know, mischief was probably afoot, and so he moved on. We all sort of looked in our Bible and looked it up, and Joshua eight eight says, "When you attack the city, burn it with fire." This is the command of the Lord. <laughs> and uh, they pulled it over on all of us. The speaker's like, why why is everyone giggling to themselves? What's going on? He had to stop, and we looked up, and it was all, you know, as middle schoolers do. Um, And I remembered that this week, because it's very dangerous for us to misunderstand and misapply a passage of Scripture, right? You can do it on purpose, like my friends, as 8th graders would do. Uh, Love all the 8th graders in the room. Uh, Or... You could you could accidentally or mistakenly misapply or misunderstand a text, and so today I have to say you might have heard some of that when Brandon was reading. I have to say this is one of the most misapplied, maybe misunderstood, uh, text in the New Testament. But we want to dig into it because there's richness to it for us and great things for us if we understand it well. So let's just jump right into the deep end of the pool. Verse eighteen. Verse 18 of 1 Peter 2, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing or a commendable thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, as you can see, there's an opportunity for misunderstandings or bad applications there. In fact, I think a lot of us are following the uh, March Madness basketball tournament going on just a couple of weeks ago. Head coach of Texas A&M, I won't mention his name, uh, head coach of Texas A&M said to his team, slaves, obey your master. He was then let go a few days later because of that. Uh, misusing this text, it's kind of funny, it's kind of not funny to say that to somebody, right? And, and uh, you know, he would not be the first or the worst, right, to misuse a biblical text. Um, they, so they suspended him and... Um, if, if you cherry-pick a verse out of context and form an opinion or something about it without looking around the Scriptures, without thinking about wisdom and looking at what the Bible says about something, you might be tempted to make that mistake that the coach made. Oh, people are supposed to obey me. Okay, 1 Peter 2.18. No. No, that's cherry-picking. It's called proof-texting, and we want to look around and see the context of what Paul is saying. And so in order to avoid bad applications like that... In order to avoid a mistake like that, we need to first of all jump into the first century, think about what Peter was speaking into, and we need to think about these issues in a biblical way looking around the Scriptures. You may have heard the word context. Anybody heard the word context before? Many of you? So there's, there's a few different contexts in every passage of Scripture. One is the verses around it. Right? You read around it to see, well, what's the flow of thought here? What's this chapter about? That helps you. There's another context, though, in every passage of Scripture, and that is the biblical context. What does the whole Bible teach about this issue? And so when you get stuck on something, you can look up that word and look up that that line of thinking. What does the Bible say about work? What does the Bible say about marriage? Whatever. And you can see what the Bible says about in in other places about that topic and form a more well-rounded opinion. Or you can just be like our friend, the basketball coach, and just think that you know what it means, Right? I'm not trying to be too hard on him, but we can all do that unless we look around and see the biblical context. Um, so let's do a couple things. A misunderstanding of this and some other passages in the New Testament. One big misunderstanding, you may have heard this attack, uh, when people want to attack the scriptures, they may have said something like, the Bible celebrates slavery. The Bible celebrates slavery. I left some room for misunderstandings and for right understandings in your notes there if you want to take these down. Um, because what we, what we want to say, what we want the New Testament to say, if we're just sort of viscerally encountering these words for the first time, is we want it to say, all slaves go free, right? That's what we think is right. Like, slavery is wrong, amen, we all think so. So why doesn't the Bible just say, slaves should go free? Why not? Well, in the first century, Roman slavery was much different than the 17th and 18th century slave trade in the West, the African slave trade. In fact, in Peter's culture here, it's estimated that between 10 and 20% of all people were slaves. If I lived at that time, I would be a slave. Why? I have a mortgage. Some of you might feel like that enslaves you now. Uh, So I would be in bond servanthood to the bank until the mortgage is paid off, right? And when you had a debt, that's how you would do that. You would work it off. Um, and, And there were all different kinds of servants. In fact, rich folks would hire teachers, people with the equivalent of a Ph.D., Today, they would hire them, put them into bond servanthood to teach their kids and the, and the kids in their extended family. Remember, extended families live together, so it's a lot of people to come and be the teacher for their family. So that person, that teacher was a bond servant. And he would work that off, and he would work as long as they wanted him to. And he was a servant, which is the kind of person that, that Peter is addressing here. So I'm not trying to look on the sunny side here of first century servanthood and paint it as all a wonderful thing. Many of you, How many of you have seen the movie uh, Gladiator? Right? The guys in Gladiator, those were people who were overtaken by the empire and brought into bond servanthood and they were slaves and they were put into the games of death and, and mistreated throughout the movie and you saw that. So there, were, there was definitely exploitation, don't get me wrong, but it's very different than the buying and selling of people that we saw in the 18 and 1700s in the West, very different thing. Most of us in this room would be bond servants to someone and it was a large part of society. So when we want um, Peter and Paul in the New Testament to say all slaves go free, what we would be saying at that point is breakdown of all society. Because there would be no financial security or living security for millions of people and and the basic structures of society would break down. And so instead of doing that, I think this is really great. The Holy Spirit, when he inspired the New Testament, decided to undermine slavery from the inside. Instead of just saying, all slaves should go free, he put this kind of poison pill into the world through the New Testament that would eventually lead to the abolition and the abolishment of slavery through John Newton and in the late 1800s. They were using the Bible when they did that. What am I talking about? Ephesians chapter 6 is a place where it says to masters, masters, remember as you have slaves, you yourself have a master too, who is God. So that kind of thinking just flips the whole enterprise on its head, that if I'm a master, if I have servants working for me, I have a master too. So that changes my mindset, right? 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 21, if you want to write these down, 1 Corinthians seven twenty one says to slaves that if you can buy yourself out of slavery, you should do that, you should go free. You should do that. So again, we see the difference between something like that and what happened here in the 17 and 1800s. No, if you can, buy yourself out of slavery, Paul says to the slaves. The whole book of Philemon, if you want to write that down, Philemon was a, was a master who had a servant, uh, Onesimus, who he gave to Paul for a while, and Paul was sending him back and said, treat Onesimus like your brother. Treat him like my dear son, like your brother. That kind of thinking would eventually lead the world to conclude, yeah, this is wrong. We should not own the rights to people. That's from the scriptures where, where Paul was showing the equality of all people. And the biggest thing, by the way, when if someone says to you, I think the Bible celebrates slavery, what you can say is that the Bible actually condemns what was going on in the West in the 17 and 1800s. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, Paul has a list of sins, as he usually does, um, and one of the main sins he characterizes as being out of bounds of the will of God is man-stealing. Enslavers and man-stealers are not fit for the kingdom of God. That is what was going on earlier in our country's history, that kind of thing, stealing people, selling people, right? Right? So that's always been condemned by the scriptures. And then in, in places like this, we see that, that uh, Peter and Paul and the Holy Spirit want slaves and masters to be in a respectful relationship as society functioned in that way. He wanted them to respect each other. Masters, view yourself as under a master. Treat them with respect. Slaves, if you can buy your freedom, do that. Philemon, this servant that I'm saying to you, he is your brother. Don't exploit him. Treat him like your loving son. So that's what the Bible says about slavery. If you've ever wanted to know that, if you felt like maybe I don't have an answer against someone um, attacking the Bible in that way, no, the Bible is not for slavery. The Bible existed in a culture of slavery and addressed the issues in that way. And again, the, the foundation, some of those passages that I just mentioned to you, the foundation of that eventually led to the overthrow of slavery in Great Britain in 1807 is when that began, and eventually it filtered out over the world. Okay? So that was a little educational. If you snoozed off, this is not history class, Aaron. I'm sorry about that. Come back with me. Um, but that is, when, it, when it's talking about servants and masters, that's the world that Peter is speaking into. Okay? Another misunderstanding. Don't worry, we're going to get to the good stuff in a minute. Another misunderstanding, verse 19, um, when it says, this is a gracious thing. That when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's a gracious or a commendable thing when one endures suffering unjustly, mindful of God. Um, That is also a very misapplied passage. Some people think that that says you must stay in harmful and abusive situations. So when that verse has been used out of context, again, there's a biblical context here that must mean Well, because of that verse, that means that I must stay in harmful and abusive situations. If it's a commendable thing or a gracious thing, that means you must stay. Now, one thing to say real quick, we always want to decide when we're reading the Bible, is this descriptive? Is it describing the way things were or is it prescriptive? Like, you should do this, right? Right? What is, the, what is the tone of the passage? Is it just describing things or is it prescriptive? And here's a place where you could say, you know, just because Peter says it's a commendable thing that you persevere in suffering, that doesn't mean that you can turn the corner on that and say it's a sin to leave suffering. See, that would be a prescription, and I don't read that in there. And so if you've ever had that used against you or if you know someone, if you've heard it like I have, um, where it's saying it, it's sinful for you to leave a situation that's abusive and harmful. We're going to get into some of the details of that. But just remember, that's not what this passage says. That's a, that's a prescription that's not there, okay? So if we get stuck, if we can get stuck on that verse and say, man, this seems really tough. I think about um, toxic job situations. I think about abusive situations in marriage, uh, sort of a sense of not stirring the pot if things are tough, Right? Let's look at the whole biblical context, the whole biblical context. Verse 19 is not saying that you can't call the police or you can't report an injustice. Um, I mean, last week, right, Colbert talked about the governing authorities and how we're, our relationship to them. Of course we can. That's God gave us them. God gave us the governing authorities and the police so that we can use them for protection. So, yes... We can do that. Even if it gets down to smaller things like, like you can't ask about your paycheck if you don't get paid. Yes, you can. Yeah, don't use verse 19 as well. I guess I'm just supposed to be quiet and just take no pay. No. No, that's not what it's saying. That's It's not saying that there's never anything to be um, appealed. In the context of marriage, I've seen that verse misused. In the context of marriage... Let's look at the biblical context. You might look at that and go, oh, okay, well, I guess that's saying that you always have to stay in a situation even if it's physically harmful or abusive to you. Okay, let's look around the scriptures. How about this? Husbands, honor your wives. Ephesians 5, uh, 1 Peter 3, in, in, in a few weeks here, live with them in an understanding way, husbands. Husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. So I always wonder if someone's going to read 1 Peter 2, 19 to someone who's stuck in abuse Why would they not also read one chapter next or back in Ephesians and go, yeah, let's really get after a person who's the perpetrator, who's not living in an understanding way, who is being harsh with his wife. Let's bring those scriptures up, right? And let's not cherry pick verse 19 and say, well, someone has to stay in a situation that could be dangerous and abusive and horrible. We must be a place, as the church, where we understand Scripture that way, where we be a place for the victim, a place where we know the whole Bible. We, We can't give this verse to a person in suffering if we know who the perpetrator is. And we don't confront that person. That's not just, right? God is judge. God is all about justice. And so if we're going to try to help a person who's in a suffering situation Uh, that's very unjust to bring up 1 Peter 2.19 and not bring up all the other biblical teaching on a topic like that, right? Why would we cherry pick and do that? Uh, In fact, again, like I said, I'm not sure that there's as much imperative, uh, prescriptive weight in this passage as people have given it. It's not a you must. It's not a you are sinning if you leave a suffering situation. I I don't see that there. Remember, what we just talked about, 1 Corinthians chapter seven, Paul says to slaves: If you can buy your freedom, if you can if you can pay your way out, you should do that and gain your freedom. Right? So the Bible has a, a fully orb teaching on a, on a subject like this. When you're in a situation of suffering, when you're in a stuck situation, what do you do? Well, let's look in the whole scriptures. Right. There might be a time and there might be a season where you need to persevere. Perseverance is a fruit of the Spirit. You have to be patient in a difficult or suffering time. You have to be at a a job that's difficult. You have to be in a relationship that's difficult. And, And those who can help are biblically obligated to bring justice and order to a situation as well. Bottom line those who can help a victim should not quote 1 Peter 2 to a victim. If you're in a position of authority or care of someone, if you're just a good friend of someone, that it's not the time for 1 Peter 2. It's probably not the passage to quote. We should do all that we can to help. Maybe we should quote Romans 13, talk about the governing authorities, right? We want to be a place here at Miss You If you need help, we want to be biblical and help you and do whatever we can for you if you find yourself in a situation like that. Yes, perseverance is a fruit of the Spirit. Amen. Peter's helping us with that. But also, remember, let's look around the scriptures, that we want to be a help and an aid to those who are in suffering and in crisis. You don't come up to someone who's suffering and say, well, it's commendable that you would just stand up under this. The end. That's unbiblical. That's unbiblical teaching. So, I want to be careful with that. And so those are two big misunderstandings from this passage. I just wanted to address that, sort of put the, you know, get at the elephant in the, in the room here, that the Bible does not celebrate suffering, and it's not that you have to stay in harmful and abusive situations. By the way, a big help there is community. Like, let's bring people in. this. say, hey, what do you think about this? Is this something where I should persevere, or is this something where I should hit the eject button? Is this something where I need to stick it out, or is this something where God has given me the freedom to, to go? Bring folks into that. Bring the leadership of this church Or another church, if you're visiting today, bring folks into that who can help you. And uh, dialogue and and work through that as best you can. So, if we're not to draw those kinds of conclusions from this text, if we're not supposed to understand it that way, and and beat folks over the head uh, with a passage like this, what is Peter saying here? What is he saying? Well, there's a few things that I think are helpful to us. Really helpful, really foundational. As we, remember, consider that question, as we consider how should we then live if God has bought us out and made us His people set apart for Him? How should we live? Helpful stuff. From verse 18, the character of the leadership doesn't determine the quality of our work. The character of the leadership should not determine the quality of our work. Wherever God has put us, our vocation the job he's given us to do, the, the family where he's placed us, the relationships he's placed us in, the character of those people in relationship to us doesn't determine how we're supposed to act. And boy, that's a, that's a tough one. I understand that, that you, you, know, you want to give as good as you get and you want to make sure that everybody knows how horrible a person your boss is and you want to make sure that everybody knows how difficult you have it. I, I am fully... Uh, in that battle with you, Um, and it's important to say, by the way, there's not a, again, there's not a one-to-one relationship between servants, obey your masters, and vocation and work situations, or basketball teams, as the case may be, right, it's not not a one-to-one correspondence, but we can take away from it, And we can learn from this passage that God has us in many different places, many different vocations, many different callings, many different places in life, and we're tempted in those places to work and to serve to the level of our respect for the leadership. We're tempted to put our work at the level of respect that we have for the folks in leadership, or maybe work based on how much we feel loved uh, or respected. This passage is reminding us that God is sovereign He's put us where we are and He's given our hands work to do. He's given us a vocation. Could be with kids at home, could be at the office, could be traveling work all the time, could be uh, gig work every now and then. Whatever it is that God has given us to do contracting, working in a season of less work and lighter work, or maybe in a heavy season of more work and busyness, all of it. Respect those that we're working for. Why? in verse 19, out of reverence for Christ, being mindful of Christ. So if you have a person in leadership or someone you're working with who is not perfect, right? If you do, persevere. Oh, that's all of us, by the way. All of us are working for people who are imperfect. Uh, All of us are in that place. Respect them and work for them out of reverence for Christ. The character of the leadership does not determine the quality of our work. And then the main one, since it starts out with these situations of servants and masters and and, uh, holding up under suffering, the main thrust of this passage is that we can entrust ourselves to Christ. Verse 23 talks about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued, it's an active, continuing thing, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. There's two things that Christ did. Verse 21, it says that Christ gave us an example to follow. Gave us an example that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was threatened, he did not threaten in return. Man, what a work of the Spirit when we can actually succeed at at, uh, doing that, right? Right? At not reviling in return. So he's giving us an example, but it's not just that, that uh, Peter's saying, hey, Jesus did that, you go do that, right? Be, be like Jesus, WWJD, what would he do? Go do that. That's kind of hopeless, right? That's not the, the main thing that it's about here. Yes, Christ gave us an example, but then it goes on to say, Christ suffered on our behalf for our sake and by his wounds. We are healed. Christ didn't just give us an example of suffering. He gave us effective su- suffering for us, on our behalf, that we can take comfort in, that we can stand in and use as our foundation. And, and one of the ways that we entrust ourselves to Creator is that we entrust, him, entrust ourselves to Him as judge. In verse 23 there, He entrusted Himself to the judge who judges justly. We don't usually talk about the justice of God as a, as a doctrine of comfort, right? God is judge. Put that on a mug that we would you know, get coffee every morning in a t-shirt. God is judge. No, we don't do that, do we? It's, it's kind of confronting, isn't it? We don't think of that as a, as a comfort to us. But it is because if God is judge, guess who is not? You can step out of the dock with your black robe on as judge of all things high and holy horse that you sit on and get out of there and let God be judge. We don't have to settle all scores. We don't have to settle all accounts. We can entrust ourselves to God. Romans even says it in a very dramatic way. Beloved, leave room for the wrath of God. Now, you can sort of think of that as kind of twisting your mustache that God's going to really get that guy for what he did to me, you know, in sort of a diabolical that's not what that's saying. It's just saying that if you can back away, take a deep breath, and remember that the judge of the universe sees all and knows all, might be less tempted to retaliate. might be less tempted to fire back at someone. Um, these, this is work of the Holy Spirit that I'm talking about a few times this morning. These are things that we're, that we're on the road with, that we're journeying with, that we don't have down. Amen to that. I'm with you in that but that God wants to do among us. God is judge. And and like we said earlier and last week, God will use authorities to enact justice. He will use circumstances and leadership, appeal to those. We should do that. We should pray for that. There's an issue of injustice. God, would you please bring justice to bear on this situation? I entrust myself to you. can't fix this. If I try to fix this, I'll make it worse. I'll make more enemies. God, would you please fix this? Or even as we pray for like large world events that are happening, we pray, God, would you please stop these men? Would you stop this government? Would you stop this from happening? We're praying against injustice. We're entrusting ourselves to God. And so we should make appeals to all kinds of leadership and in all kinds of circumstances. And so he ends this passage just with those words of comfort. Servants and masters in a suffering situation. Verse 19, he ends it with this comfort that they're tempted to wander, but he pleads with them to return to the shepherd of their souls. Verse 25, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. No matter what they're facing, no matter how bad or unethical the leadership, they're in the Roman Empire, it's pretty bad pretty bad, pretty corrupt, no matter the suffering. See, suffering as a, as a Christian, we have an understanding of this that I think helps us in the world because we know that suffering will be a part of our vocation. Suffering is a part of our life. The, the exercises and the backflips that we do to avoid and get out of suffering always, uh, I shouldn't say always, make, make things worse very often by trying to always avoid suffering. I think it's in the West, it's a special sort of struggle that we have that we always want to avoid, 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 avoid suffering. Not gonna have that hard conversation, not gonna deal with this, not gonna deal with that, just gonna skate through, gonna do the minimum as possible, let's get out of here. That doesn't help you. We know that our vocations, where God has placed us, the things he's given our hands to do, will involve suffering, no matter where we are, who we are, or where God has put us. We live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. So Peter can address that and say it's a commendable thing when you stand up uh, under suffering because Christ has sacrificed Himself for you. Look at verse 23. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Verse 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed they can entrust themselves to God they can trust we can trust God and he will make things right and I know that you know, we can try to do very practical things of reminding ourselves of that. Maybe we get a verse on the dashboard, I'm not going to retaliate against those people on the interstate, I'm not going to retaliate at work, put a note on our monitor, I'm not going to retaliate when I'm frustrated at work. I'm going to leave it to God. We can remind ourselves and those might be good things, but what we're asking for, in addition to those good techniques, is we're asking for the Spirit to come and soften our heart and change our heart. Remember that God has healed us with his sacrifice. We don't have to get revenge. We don't have to always expel ourselves from a difficult place. Here's what Chuck DeGroat says as we as we close today. It says the only way through disappointment, even betrayal, is to find your way to the ground, feet in the dirt, anchored in the truth of who and whose you are. Here, whatever the path ahead holds, you, rooted and grounded, will be able to meet it. Rooted and grounded in Christ, New Testament tells us, by His wounds we are healed. And I love that phrase He uses there: anchored in the truth of who you are and whose w h o s e, whose you are. That's how we navigate suffering situations, remembering who has us, who has bought us. As we as we read, sometimes we read that first question of the catechism: um, "I am not my own." was bought body and soul belong to my Savior and Creator, Jesus Christ. That's why that's such a great statement for us because that's how we can navigate the various things that are difficult in our life, the various pitfalls and sufferings and hard hard things is we have to remember whose we are and who has us. Life is many things, life is difficult. One thing, life is not life is not chaotic. There isn't that sense of just chaos that we have no control over. Sometimes, you know, it feels like chaos. All the kids come home, everything's crazy for a minute, sure. But in the true sense of the word, life is not chaotic. We have a, we have a Redeemer who is, who is at the helm of the universe. And we need to remember that. And so I want us to spend some time processing uh, those promises together at our tables and maybe even praying, uh, praying for some folks at your table who who may be in the middle of one of these suffering situations. God, what should I do? Do I need to eject myself from this? Do I need to stand up with perseverance? How should I navigate that? I want to give you some time to pray and and dialogue about that as as we close today, and then we'll go to the table and continue to worship. So let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful today to read those words that you bore our sins on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and by your wounds we have been healed. And Father, we want to understand your word correctly and, and we want to discern well uh, where we are in our vocation, where you've put us, what the circumstances are. We want to understand that correctly and what might be a good, wise action to take. And so, Father, I pray that the Spirit would give us insight, Lord, and that our communities would give us insight. On, on what steps we should take Lord thank you for these precious words to us that Peter wrote to exiles all over the all over uh, southern Europe just to say that the Christ has us we can return to him as our shepherd and that's how we can then look outward and face the world and face Monday as you have it for us because we are yours thank you for that truth today in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I think we have the questions up there. So spend some good time in that and we'll go to the table in a few minutes.
2: All right. We're going to transition to communion. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to pray. Uh, I'm finished praying while we started. But uh, Lord, I uh, Lord, ask for healing where there's healing needed. Uh, spiritually, emotionally, physically, I ask that if there's people that are in a situation right now where it's hurting them, I ask that you would uh, help. Give them wisdom and guidance. Help them to know whether to stay or go and help them to persevere if they need to, Lord. And help us um, to be a blessing to, to those people too, Lord. So uh, we ask that you be glorified in everything. Jesus' name, amen. uh, uh, As we uh, go toward communion, uh, uh, we can respond in worship, and there's lots of ways to respond. Uh, God's word is good, isn't it? And uh, that's why, you know, that's why Colbert can leave and know that somebody's going to be preaching God's word here, because God's word is what does it and uh, it's the words of eternal life. And we can come to that. We can come to Jesus. And uh, communion is our time to remember what Jesus has done for you. Here we do open communion to anybody that has trusted in Christ and claims Christ as their Lord and Savior can come to the table. Uh, And if uh, that's not the case, if you haven't trusted in Christ, uh, the table's not for you. But... It's not too late you can come to Christ if you feel the Lord the Spirit tugging on you and saying hey it's time to confess your sins repent and come to Jesus uh, let's do that and uh, there's people at your table even you can pray with Uh, we'll be in the corner if you want to pray with us and uh, so uh, yeah Jesus died for sins everybody sins and so come to Jesus Uh, we can respond by giving there's a box in the back. There's a spot on the website and on the, the app. Uh, we can respond by singing, which is what we'll do shortly. We can respond in prayer. And uh, yeah, so let's worship. And uh, Jesus um, took the cup. He said, This is my blood shed for you. He took the bread. This is my body broken for you. Whenever you do this, do it in remembrance of me. So let's remember Jesus. Let's think of what he has done for us and be thankful and worshipful. So I'll pray once again. Lord, Lord, be glorified and uh, be here with us and uh, be honored in Jesus' name. Amen.